All right. Welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today, we have Dan Helds. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for, I mean, finally connecting, uh, at least over video. And obviously, you've been been around many sports and many different high-level teams. Do you want to maybe give a brief background about yourself and we'll dive into some work capacity stuff? Yes. Yeah, so my background is uh, strength conditioning coach across a number of different sports, uh, as you allude to. Started that uh, career trajectory in the Institute of Sport in England. Uh, really fortunate in the early days to be a multi-sport practitioner, which doesn't quite exist anymore because we have niches of coaches working with sports. So mm. that actually gave me a really big insight into, um, you know, s- principles of training and their application across a myriad of different sports, like disability sport, for example, versus rugby, versus hockey, versus netball and squash. So loads of different sport exposures there, which was really cool. And then I started to specialize in the sport that I was a little bit more averse to, which was rugby, uh, because I was a player myself. Uh, and then started to to go into the realm of rugby sevens, which was a really, really cool space to operate in for five years, really focused on this work capacity side of things and energy systems that, that we'll talk about. Um, and then spent three years in Florida with, with the Houston Astros um, as an organization, working across all their teams in their strength conditioning department and, and leading the strategy and vision around how they develop their athletes. Um, and since then, I've come back, did another Olympics with the Sevens in Tokyo, which was really cool to, to revisit that with that group and have since been returning to lecturing and helping coaches more these days than the athletes in terms of upskilling them as practitioners and, and as thinkers and as people that apply what we are learning uh, on the ground with the athletes. Nice. And I think what would be interesting to touch on after some of the work capacity stuff is obviously with sevens, the travel schedule is another mm-hmm. level. I mean, you're traveling like a whole damn year. So maybe we can dive into that in a little bit. But let's start with this idea of work capacity. You've talked about energy system development there too. So yeah. let's start with how do you define work capacity? I like to think it's a, yeah, it's a broad thing, but obviously I think rugby, rugby sevens is probably in my eyes, the closest to combat sports in terms of similarities and preparation mm-hmm. and what I see. So maybe just an idea of work capacity and kind of where you, I guess we can say defining it and then how you see work capacity, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. I've got the word now, I had the word in my head, applies to sports like combat sports. Yeah. I think I think the first thing is we've got a can of worms open, haven't we, with the, with the phrase or term work capacity. It's not actually a phrase term that I would use that often. And I think we've got the term work capacity, conditioning and energy systems or energy system development used mm-hmm. interchangeably. And I actually think yeah. they probably mean different things. I, If we move work capacity for the moment, uh, which is essentially an ability to tolerate a work demand of a certain task, right? And um, do I have the ability to match that, exceed that, or am I and you know uh, undercooked in that ability but i think we use interchangeably the phrase conditioning and energy system development i think it means different things personally and that is that if we're looking at energy system development it, it's very pure in nature we're looking to specifically target specific adaptations um in a hierarchy of need or a priority sense we're either looking at specific central adaptation so specific peripheral adaptation or um a buffering capability or a neuromuscular capability, etc. So that that for me is that, and I think conditioning dilutes that. I think we think about conditioning and we go right. We're going to condition for the sport of rugby, or we're going to condition for a fight uh, type sport. 
And that's where people start to use the sport to solve that problem. And mm-hmm. therefore, it, it, it covers a lot of bases, but it might not improve, I guess, the work capacity side of things because it's not specific enough. Um, and I use an example of like tempo runs, for example, in rugby, where people are using that to develop energy systems. But I actually believe that's just a conditioning tool to condition for a specific task of running, mm-hmm. right? Um, there are trade-offs for it in, in other ways physiologically, but I don't believe it's changing the pure energy system components that we can train in, in other ways. So it's understanding, am I, am I looking for an energy system development adaptation or am I doing something that helps me tolerate the demands of a task better? Mm-hmm. And both of those are very applicable methods. It's just right strategy, right time across that spectrum. Yeah. And so I would see work capacity <laughs> as an overarching phrase that encompasses like um, those, those sort of two contrasting views, I guess. Gotcha. So it's basically conditioning plus or times energy system development equals yeah. work capacity. Yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah, uh, and it, it's a, it's a. Yeah, I'm just talking out loud here and, and sharing thoughts with you. But that's something I've been thinking about the last twelve months is when people are using these phrases interchangeably, and I'm looking at the, the methods they might use for conditioning, and it might be circuit based work. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, there's a there's a number of things that could be happening here. And that's, that's the fact that they could be happening. Therefore, we have a, a bandwidth of potential variation in the outcomes here. Um, mm-hmm. And small-sided games is probably a prime example of that in the rugby yeah. football sense, that we have to accept there's a huge bandwidth of, of um, not error or actual bandwidth of adaptations because different people are going to be solving that problem in different ways. And yeah. it's not pure enough for an energy system adaptation, in my view. Yeah, I've, I've talked on the podcast previously as well. I kind of look at it. You, you're, ta- you're almost taking like an energy system approach and or you're taking like a work or output approach. You're either trying to hit certain outputs within certain work rest ratios or you're looking to, I don't know, set yeah. in these specific kind of set rep ranges or time intensity ranges to target specific adaptations for whatever you're doing. You can yeah. kind of, but the, I guess the, the trick is how do you balance that then? Are you, you obviously yeah. mentioned like kind of different times you're doing different things. So you want to maybe dive into that a little. Yeah, I mean, just even hearing you talk there, I'm like, yeah, exactly that. It would be, I think, far out from competition or far out from the need to perform. You could probably go down this very specific adaptation for specific outcome that that is going to affect the sporting outcome even indirectly. So if we look at aerobic capacity, for example, and the adaptive changes that happen maybe at the um, the heart level, right, to improve stroke mm-hmm. volume and improve cardiac output, great. That's not necessarily going to help the, the performance of a, 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 a fighter in the moment in terms of transitioning, uh, transforming chemical energy, right? It's going to potentially enable them to recover quicker. So it's an indirect benefit to that part within the, the performance of that task. So those things for me would come further out from competition. And exactly as you said there around that work capacity work being, I think that's the realization of the qualities you've previously okay. developed. It's using them in the sports-specific way because we have to accept there's a decision-making and cognition component that comes probably within work capacity. And, and mm-hmm. choosing the right intent or the right pacing strategy in a certain task um, to, to influence performance. So for me, it would be in terms of balance, it would be further out from competition, building foundations with energy system development 
focuses in specific areas, understanding what underpins the work capacity tasks of the sport, and then using more work capacity tasks or conditioning tools um, mm. to solve that problem of performing um, the sport itself under duress. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think it's important as well, with uh, especially with high-level athletes. Obviously, they they know the sport so well they don't have they don't have to uh, I guess expend as much energy to do the task that maybe others would. They're always in certain positions easier. They get timing down, etc. So, developing mm. that or going after some of those adaptations earlier is going to be beneficial for them because they're probably not getting so much through what we, what we would call that specific maybe work output or work capacity training. Yeah, I think so. I think that the, there's an intelligence with elite athletes, isn't there, that, that, that mm. comes um, from time and years spent in the sport. But we know, we know what we know about physiology and that, that, that foundational physical qualities can be retained quite easily once they've been developed. And I think that's the one thing you see with elite athletes is their ability to return to previous bests after a deep, you know, a window of uh, rest or uh, an ability to to get to where they were quicker uh, than the nov- novice athlete. And I think that's the same for your strength and, and power qualities as well. Now I look at the rugby sevens cohort to work with, and we had to split our cohorts between our, our development athletes and our what we call our elite athletes because. Our elite athletes would hold hold their their adaptive gains throughout the year with mm. ups and downs in terms of intensity volume for competition and, and whatnot. But if we had an academy player come into that high level schedule, we we they would decondition quite quickly. And so yeah, those 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 elements need to come into it as well. Uh, very much like the years years in service. What's their training mm. age and how much how many years in service have they had? Yeah. Actually, I just realized now, what, what year did you finish with the Great Britain Sevens? So England Sevens, I ran 2014 through middle of 2018, end of that season, beginning when they went to the World Cup in San Francisco. And then in the middle of that, we did GB for ten with a three-month period leading up to Rio. And then, yeah, so that was my main stint. And then I came back and did the Tokyo Olympics with uh, GB in 2020. I wonder if, I wonder if we crossed paths because... I can't remember where we were now. It might have been because I was with the Romania Sevens in, I can't remember which tournament it was, but England Sevens was literally in the rooms next to where I was. So we might have made you cross, cross past it. A, Euro- a European tournament, maybe. Yeah, it was. Be- it, was a Euro- it was a European Grand Prix tournament. It might have been. No, I can't remember now. It was, I, can't, I don't think it was that. It might have been Amsterdam. No, I can't have. One of those. One of those. We might have actually just crossed paths in, in the yeah, real world before this and not realized. <laughs> The, the interesting thing about the GB Olympics in that period was that we had two teams, you know, in rugby Europe. So we had mm. GB one, two, because we were going through selection. So I wondered if it had been that year, but it sounds like it was a year that England won the circuit. Um, yeah. We would have been in, in breathing distance of one another, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. But okay, so we talked about the energy system development there. We talked about, you mentioned obviously central adaptations, peripheral adaptations, um, buffering capacity, all these kind of things. So do you have any go-to methodology protocols that you like to go to for developing some of these adaptations? Because I'm assuming regardless of the sport, you know, these things are developed through specific intensities, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and it's not related to the sport itself. Yeah, so a, a number of the classic things, and I guess I've just got, I believe I've got good clarity on how I go about it, and that is 
I specifically work in a work to rest uh, manner, a ratio manner and a time-based manner because um, otherwise we've got, especially in team sport athletes, right? If I'm working with an yeah. equal one, then I could use distance-based equivalents. But yeah. the moment you start getting into distance-based equivalents, you've got a bit of a migration to the mean in a large group where the mm. fast people will pace themselves a little bit. The guys who are at the, at the back are going to be pushing themselves quite hard. And, and suddenly you get, again, the same issues that you get with small-sided games, which is high variation in, in, in work yeah. intensity. So what I tend to do is work on a specific work-to-rest ratio and understand how that basically like a fourth velocity curve for energy systems, right? Much like we have uh, strength and mm. power of fourth velocity curve, we've got a, a time and intensity curve for for energy systems. And so my um, longer steady state stuff is going to be continuous. You know, there is no rest ratio there. It's just continuous work in this classic zone two, which is popularized at the moment, Very. But, yeah, but, but has been around for a number of years. And, and that influenced me back in 2014, 15, when we had a 16 week preseason with the rugby sevens group, we did a four week block of ex, um, exclusively aerobic work where we did 10 minute pieces on bikes, uh, rowers, um, mm. and then ran around the, the rugby field and did that in 10 minute pieces up for up to 60 minutes with music and, and heart rate monitors and just capped their pace or capped their intensity. And the benefits in the next block were, were significant in recovery perceptually and performance wise. And we can probably talk about that down the line. Mm. And then if we've got aerobic power and I'm looking to maximize my intensity above that classic 70, 75% heart rate, um, if I'm measuring the output. Um, but I'm look, I'm working in the one to six minute range, six minute with my guys that can tolerate that kind of work. If not mm -hmm. one to four on a, on a ratio of two to one work to rest. So might yeah. be eight by two minutes on one minute off. Um, then we get into what I call the mixed energy system elements, uh, where we, where we look at traditionally people using methods like MAS prescription and tempo. Right. Mm -hmm. So your MAS are classically going to be that um, one to one or through to two or two to one through to one to one. So maybe 30 on 15 off, 20 on 10 off and, and 15 on 15 off type classic modalities. And you can see how these ratios are, are graduating down to more reps or up to more reps. And then you move to your tempo work, which would be a bit more of a one to four ratio for me. Um, yeah. And then we get into our big sprint work and, and we get into then our sprint work of one, one to six to eight and one to ten uh, respectively. And so it's a really nice way to organize your thoughts about the types of stimulus you're putting into the body, but also the types of adaptation. We go back to the early start of the continuum and the continuous work. We know that's going to be central cardiac in nature and stroke volume orientated, for example. Whereas when we get to aerobic power and that two to one work to rest ratio, one to six minute type work, we know we're getting a little bit more peripheral work and um, we're getting mitochondrial uh, enzymatic changes as opposed to the proliferation and biogenesis of mitochondria that we get in the steady state work. So it's all—it's about knowing exactly what you're trying to get, in my opinion, and training for that in a pure sense. Now, this, where I talked about that mixed energy system in that middle of that continuum is also where I see sport coming into play. Mm. So, you know, our MAS is a method, uh, so it's a measure, not a method, remember? So, you know, and again, another uh, method is to use small-sided games if you want to in there. But for every <laughs> method that moves you further away from a guaranteed stimulus, you have to accept there's going to be a, 
a larger yeah. spread of people that don't get that stimulus that you want. And then it's a trade-off between the technical tactical side of things uh, versus mm. the physiology. And that's fine. That's, that has its place. Um, so, yeah, so I work on that kind of spectrum of a continuum of, of understanding what the work-to-rest ratios are going to elicit. And it, and it helps organize your thoughts. I stepped into a world like baseball that were traditionally running drills, you know, poles from one side of the field to the other. And it would be 10, 10 poles with 30, you know, on the minute, every minute. But you'd have guys completing it in 25 seconds and some guys completing it in 40. Yet it was programmed as if it was the same thing because mm. it was an, an exercise as opposed to an adaptation. So really important to understand, you know, what you're trying to get from the stimulus you're putting into the body from an output and an adaptation point of view. Nice. And, and you mentioned in the beginning, for example, you did like a four-week block purely focusing on the steady state, looking for central adaptations. During that time, were you still covering, say, just pure out-and-out -out speed power work in that time as well? Yeah. So I, I really love to polarize the work, right? And that's another principle. So we're laying down like key principles around energy system mm. development. For me, it's to work to, to a uh, – a work to rest ratio using duration based prescription. Next principle is to polarize your work for pure energy system development. So, what is always in effect and always there on one end of the spectrum is our speed work. You know, from an on and on feet energetics point, we're completely there all the time is our speed work. How we're training that is going to differ. So, clearly, coming in from an off season, um, we're going to be working much more on the technical side of running. And we're going to reintroduce change direction classically and deceleration. Um, and we're going to expose people to small volumes of, of speed exposure. And we're going to build that up over time progressively. Um, whilst concurrently at the right times of the week, stressing the aerobic side of things within um, the training schedule. And so, yeah, it was there. And then as we work through our 16 weeks, we move and shift the bias and move it closer and less polarized towards speed. So we'd move into aerobic power and our classic, what I'd call high intensity interval training, this mixed energy system side of things as well. And then the sport, you know, mm. um, speed was is, for rugby specifically, sprint work is always present because it features as a task within mm -hmm. the sport itself, right? Um, uh, but, but with boxing, for example, or fighting, then yeah, the equivalent there might be just power, pad, pad power, yeah. for example. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, so it was really layered, and, and, it, and we were fortunate. Like, 16 weeks is untraditional, right? It was between two – it was between Commonwealth and Olympics, so there was a, an early Commonwealth and a, a late start to the World Series. So it just gave us this extended period of time. And what was really interesting for me was that in that time, I, I also uh, characterized the, the energy system profiles of players. So we did their max velocity, their, their average uh, flying max velocity over six by 30 meters or 40 mm -hmm. meters sprints. So you get that classic repeat sprint profile. Um, we did uh, 100 meter efforts. We did 400 meter, 1200. Um, and we did a yo-yo intermittent recovery too. And, and so what I did was then converted everybody's performance in those tasks to meters per second. And you had a nice energy system profile oh, okay yeah and what what we were seeing was that the differentiating factor from our fast players so we have a we have classic players that, that notch up the same speed nine nine and a half plus meters per second right 
on whatever unit you're using is relatively fast mm-hmm. or, or world class fast for, for servants. And then we see the ability to repeat that very different between two people with the same max output speeds. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's where work capacity comes in. What's my ability to utilize my physical qualities in a task that's specific to the sport? And so we were seeing guys who had massive fatigue profiles but had the same initial sprint themselves. Mm-hmm. And what we were seeing was that the, the 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 individuals that could retain repeat sprint performance were the ones with the greater aerobic engines, greater aerobic performances. Um, so for me, when I started doing that, I was like, okay, there's there's more merit in this than probably team sports give credit to. Um, and I think if you look at the history of team sports, they used to do it a lot. They used to spend a lot of time running and doing aerobic work anyway. And then it um, died. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've sort of become an anti-performance model by comparison maybe and trained out of it. But um, that, that gave me enough insight to go, there's some merit in this, and let's go and test that curiosity. And so that's what I did. And after that, I wasn't expecting to see the benefits so quickly. We did the four weeks, and then we moved into classically our – uh, aerobic power work and tempo work at that point. Um, and I was just seeing guys recover far, far quicker on the tempo work and the MA, MAS type methods as well, where they just re- recovered so much quicker. And, and it was a breeze. So we could just notch the volume up. Then the issue became uh, accumulation of high speed running volume that, that they hadn't yeah. been before. So it was just different problems to, to navigate. But it was really cool to see the RPs of efforts the heart rate returning quite quickly just from that four-week dose. Um, Interesting. Dedicated time time spent on that aerobic capacity side of things. Right. How, how much would you put down – okay, that's probably not a question that can be answered, but in terms of guys that maybe same speed profiles or maybe really fast guys but have mm-hmm. very poor recovery with that, how much would you put down to potentially fiber type – down there like your fast twitch twitch you guys maybe can do that but they just they just cannot recover as quick is are you then yeah. pushing them towards that aerobic side to try to develop that just you know without trying to hinder that speed yeah i think it's i think then you've got to think about sort of the dynamic correspondence and cost right so um yeah everyone will know the dan nortons of this world in sevens you'll know him especially yep. and another guy like tom, tom bowen two english wingers fantastic guys both very exceptional speed and and pretty much like for like on top speed how they get there is a little bit different but in terms of ability to generate 10 meters per second they're both there but very different especially in in this particular year we're talking about very different in their ability to reproduce that effort and you'll Mm -hmm. know in sevens that you have 14 minute players and you have ones that aren't 14 minute players and they gas out and the moment people gas out is because the the work capacity exceeds their ability to recover within it before they have to go again. And um, and that was the Dan versus Tom situation. And so we spent time on on something like Tom's aerobic development. And there's this question, isn't there? If you if you move somebody from a 10 to a 9.8 meters per second, right, they get slower. People perceive that as being sub performance impact, like anti-performance. But what if he was a 10? A nine six, a nine five, a nine two, nine eight eight, fifteen profile across six sprints, and you, that work put him to be a nine eight to nine six for the six repeat sprints. Arguably, that's a performance enhancement because mm-hmm. 
it's we're not dealing with track sprinters where they've got one rep, one effort. Yeah. We've got and we know in rugby sevens that it's 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 not the first minute of the game that the games are won. It'll be who comes out on top under fatigue, like who has the greater work capacity. So so I personally felt there was a a benefit to spending that time on on that work. However, I was aware of the cost if we made it mechanistically the same as the the task itself. So we we did a lot of it off feet, you know. Mm. We took a lot of it off feet, um, so that we weren't creating a, a, a sort of a fatigue profile from running, basically. Um, yeah. So I think it's just about systematically planning that stuff and and making sure that you're not, you know, you've got this concurrent training effect. But I haven't seen those guys get slower from it, to be honest. Mm. Um, nice. Yeah. Did you did you play around at all with um? Alex Natera's high volume power training stuff to develop not, capacity. No, no, it was it was something I thought thought about, um, but we that, that you know in any situation you've got cultural things to, to manage, and as a program mm. we had really you know established World Series players, and we also had an academy structure, um, and there was just things that we were doing in the in, in our development of. I guess in that work capacity sense as well, with the coaches, we did a lot of what we call transference work. So we would do um, some contrasting work, like uh, we might do a, a strength speed orientated lift, like a heavy trap bar pull or mm. heavy trap bar jump into some uh, plyometrics. And then we would get into some stuff on the turf because we had a gym that had turf in it as well and, and do some clear out work. So we were looking to train those qualities and express gotcha. those qualities. And so that at the time frame, I specifically remember thinking about, is this a place for this? And the coaches wanted to do some, some what we call rugby transfer work in the gym certain time of the week. So we replaced it with that instead. Completely different type of stimulus, but for the the execution of, of power within the task itself, sport-specific task. So no. And what, what about yourself? I, tr- I used it myself. I think last year I was like, okay, I'll trial it for a while. Did I kick my ass? Eh? That was like one of the hardest things I've done. Hardest things I've done, like doing fifteen reps, like five second cl- or five rep clusters with five second rest in the beginning, and then like working towards like twelve reps uh, sets. Dude, I was, I was trying to measure just. I wanted to see changes in in power velocity, etc. But the device I was using, it was like instead of measuring just the jump itself, the concentric portion of it, it was like picking up the dip and drive as like that changes the peak velocity and stuff like that. So I had like no real change on the data. I was like, ah, oh. I did all that. As a way. <laughs> I wasted my time for four weeks. I was like, ah, oh. eventually maybe when yeah. I upgraded to a different device, I'll, I'll give it a go again. But yeah. I think that there's, there's definitely a cost to that type of work. Um, oh yeah. What we did do though, however, <laughs> which might be slightly comparable is, is we, we use repeat sprint profiles in the two mm. to three weeks prior to competition. So when we know, we know that there are some um, benefits to really, really super maximal high intensity work, right? And, and the podcast that connected me to you was the one with Andrew Usher. Yep. And I know whole, you guys talked, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, pre- yeah uh, recently. Yeah. yeah. And, and he, um, that was a great podcast because it did make me think about physiology at the muscular level and the, you know, the ability to turn, um, your oxygen, you know, create chemical energy for, for return of, uh, performance as such. So 
that high intensity profile that he's he's talking about was stuff that we were doing very close to competition before a taper, but we yeah. were doing it very minimally, and it just seemed to have really good um, bang for buck perceptually. I couldn't measure it, but mm. in terms of tolerance of activity, um, intent, and ability to push themselves and work through, as you know, rugby sevens work through a fatigue perception of fatigue was quite high. And the reason I went down that route was because of the residuals. You know that they're short-lived. You know, those changes mm. that you make are relatively short-lived from that super maximal work. And so we did like two to seven reps of five to six seconds work with, you know, 15 to 20, 24 seconds off, depending on what, what we were doing, two sets. And it would be done uh, on certain days. And the reason that I did that was because we were moving to a model within the sport that suddenly didn't give us the stimulus I needed. It didn't mm. guarantee enough for me in that run. So when we get to these sort of two, three weeks out from competition, we're, we're doing a lot more of the technical tactical work, right? We're, we're crossing the T's and dotting the I's with combinations and executions. And the coaches naturally want to deconstruct some of the work a little bit, and therefore the, the ratio of rest extends. So suddenly... Yep. You're getting into a period where you could go two to three weeks where you haven't got the volume of work you need in certain zones or certain levels of intensity. So that's why mm -hmm. I did that. And when I listened to Andrew's discussion and what he was talking about was happening in their research, I was like, okay, that was an intuitive decision, but it sounds like that that, that would have been replicative of some of the stuff he's done. And that doesn't surprise me that we seem to still perform or people people in the years we didn't do that versus did they felt much better going into competition mm. so yeah i know i know andrew's uh episodes very popular on here and ha had him on twice and yeah super interesting stuff opened my eyes to a lot of the high intensity work i think the biggest thing i'm still trying to not wrap my head around but kind of implement into this philosophy of conditioning is the idea you know, typically you're doing high intensity work okay you know aerobic or aerobic capacity kind of caps out pretty early anaerobic i guess in adaptations in terms of power and capacity for example when a wing gate might cap out um on there or in terms of lactate profiles but then from their research hey these things might cap out but the actual performance keeps improving even yeah. afterwards so you're looking yeah. at time to exhaustion tests improving even though these quote-unquote energy system markers aren't so it's like okay yeah. so these things might not be improving but you're improving the ability or the muscle's ability to resist fatigue through yeah. those through doing long periods of high intensity, you know, sprints. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's kind of opened my eyes to being like, okay, you know, maybe you, maybe you don't have to just stick with, but you know, depending on the athlete and all sorts of stuff like that, but you don't, maybe yeah. you don't have to stick with just two, three weeks of high intensity. Maybe you can go longer stretches, especially mm. if athletes don't have, I guess, a power game and they're more like workhorse style athletes specifically mm. because they can tolerate that kind of work too and probably need it. Yeah. I, what I really liked about, what that made me think about was you can, you know, you can create these central adaptations that provide you with the uh, infrastructure to supply oxygen to a muscle and mm. convert to chemical energy. Great. But it doesn't matter if you can't extract it. And mm. that's the sort of like, uh, you know, work, uh, mm. this high intensity stuff, I think would be really cool to, for people to start thinking about is I'm building a foundation to start with, but that's not the job done. That's why we have, yeah, running economy, I guess, is an example of VO2 yeah. is not the determinant of outcome for, for sports. It's how much of that VO2 you can potentially use.
And if you look at some of the work of, um, I can't remember who it was now, it might be Sanford, um, but the, the ratio basically between, you know, different athletes and how, um, you, you, you could prescribe certain energy system work based on, um, their results. I'm going to have to think about what that was. And a mind blank on it, but yeah, that 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 that, that uh, podcast you did with Andrew was cool because it just made me think about okay, that makes sense to some of the things I've done and seen intuitively, mm. um, and so it, it got me thinking about um, you know I've got actually a meeting this afternoon with 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 a Nears device company just because oh, I want, I want to have an, a a play around with some of this stuff and have a little look at what what impact it can have, and I think it's a, the lesson in that for the listeners who are strength conditioning coaches is that I actually think we people don't give this enough attention on the physiology, physiology level. People don't understand it deeply enough. And mm. that's, that's really important because when you ask me about prescriptions, not a huge number of people articulate in the field what they do and why they do it on this side of the coin very well. Yeah. Um, and I think it, <laughs> strength and conditioning, it just, again, the term conditioning just, I think, devalues what this is it's it can be very specific with very specific outcomes prescribed rightly um so mm. that's just my biased interest yeah. no i like it i like it i, I want to jump jump as well for example in season so sevens you've got tournaments you're playing every week mm. every couple of weeks depending there's obviously uh fighters for example especially grappling athletes that might compete weekly or every second week as well um so depending on the sport some will compete often wrestlers will compete often so how do you balance then the conditioning in those periods in the end season when you are competing often, because obviously you're not wanting to take away from the weekend's performance. Yeah. I, I always likened rugby sevens to athletics, actually, you know, like 10 meets basically in a year across five key destinations. where we have back to back tournaments. Mm. And I, I thought that was brilliant for our physical development needs. It gave us the ability to um, plan quite extensively. And not change too much. Um, in terms of the week-to-week -week model, the, the next layer of decision making was: Have we got individuals that that are in a, a state of elite physical development, or have we got people who are still needing to develop? Mm. And oh, we actually had two different programs a lot of the time. So we'd have guys who would be on the classic elite periodized model, um, where we would taper accordingly and, and taper quite heavily. Um, and we had guys who would be doing a little bit more work off feet because they were still in this sort of development phase. And they mm. were what we called two, three, four-minute men, not 14-minute men. We actually had dialogue with the coaches to quantify where we felt players were at in their work capacity. You know, were they 14-minute work capacity men? Uh, because that's essentially the utopia. You know, 12, 13 people on your roster ready for a game who can play 14 minutes if needed. So that, that was always interesting to manage because I'd almost have two, two programs running at any one time. Um, in terms of the rules and sort of the decision making that went on, it was we would taper prior to competition. And so we would just trust that those residuals were, were retained. Um, but we would make sure that there was just a, like you would hear classically with sprint work, microdosing component of it. And that always came to intensity, not volume for us. Yeah. It was just, can we touch on a little bit of intensity in this key area um, to retain these residuals? Um, then when we came out the back of tournaments, it was, we actually had a model of like at least 
three weeks before the next taper, if not four, five, or six weeks. So we would almost do mini pre-seasons in that sense. We mm. would have a week where we returned on feet. You know the drill. You lock jet lag back from a tournament, then the rest of that week off, and then back into training the following week. Well, the rest of that week off at home was spent on restoring physical um, uh restoring the body's ability to tolerate load through range because they hadn't done weights heavily for a few weeks. So they would do general weights, GPP type stuff in yeah. preparation to hitting the ground, doing some work the following week. That week one would be an aerobic focus. Then the week two would be much more of a high intensity work focus. And then we'd get into the repeat sprint work in addition to the rugby because the rugby was becoming much more technical, tactical at that point before mm. I had to So that was our three types of blocks it just depended did we go uh one two three because it was three weeks before our taper or did we have six weeks and it would be two of each so we'd play around with revisiting those touching touching those physical qualities again in between those competitions so that was sort of my rule of thumb of how i managed that throughout the year um mm -hmm. for, for like you say for fighters and grapplers i would imagine that people leading up to big fights with camps could operate in the same sort of way, a very clearly defined periodized model. Um, I think the dangers or the oversights would be when technical work is also a stimulus for physical work. Yes. That's probably yeah. the thing. And that, that would be the thing for me with the rugby side of things is when can I let the sport take care of the physical qualities that I'm trying to influence? So if I've planned aerobic work, with the guys or aerobic power and the coach wants to do three by six minute games and the certain rules yeah. that he has is that the ball's never dead well that's my dose done i don't need to yeah. worry and so that's that, that's part of the problem or sorry that's part of the solution is making sure that you are not are not you know hitting the actually, double dipping yeah, two, yeah i was gonna say double dipping but hitting them from <laughs> two directions with the same intended out uh, so with one intended outcome and one misdirected outcome from say the coaches or from you so it's communication is really cl clear also communication is really critical and clarity is important in that leader so whatever you do decide it's ensuring that you're not um oversaturating the system i think mm. yeah it's good that's, that's a, a good point to make as well because it's, it's very easy to crank the intensity up and oh, combat sports, especially especially with grappling. I mean, obviously, rugby and sevens has a, has the element in it too. When when you start getting the grappling wrestling out there, I mean, going going light and easy is a skill in itself. Yes. Um, so <laughs> so most people go hard there. Obviously, if you're doing sparring and preparation for a fight, that obviously ramps up the intensity too. So obviously, depending on what you're doing there, you're gonna most. I think most fighters will have to kind of play by ear with how they feel, mm -hmm. trial and error, and things like that, because you know. Maybe the sparring itself is enough because you have the gas tank. Maybe you need a little top up uh, through the week mm -hmm. as well. So it's yeah, it's mm -hmm. more of an individual basis with that too. But obviously, regarding the seven schedule and and being in the season, you obviously have travel to contend with as well. Yeah. So I mean, some fighters will tra travel for various fights depending on the level they are. So maybe just some of the things you implemented to help your athletes acclimatized to maybe new time zones or even even to short travel even just like a few hours can can still be kind of uh i guess you say off-putting or killing a routine yeah it's really interesting because i've had this conversation um last couple of months with a couple of teams and, and one was a premiership football team uh and one last week was a, a, a 
corporate company, you know, and mm. football team are dealing with traveling to sort of like Singapore, um, Thailand to play competitions and the corporate world is dealing with meetings in international countries. And, and their problem was that they were having to cancel meetings at the destination because they were just so messed up from jet lag. And so there's a real impact on, on performance world, whatever you're doing, whether it's a fighter, whether it's an athlete in a different sport, or whether it's just you as a person traveling, it really does have a knock-on effect on the body. However, the what we did in the rugby sevens world was was develop processes to overcome that. Now, a lot of it will be what we're, we're taught and what the evidence shows. However, a lot of it is counter to that evidence because the real world doesn't allow you to, to do what's in an academic study. So for example, you're defined, you're constrained to flight schedules, right? Yep. There's, I might be traveling um, out to New Zealand and I need to focus on getting up uh, earlier, but there's a late flight in the evening and that's the only one we can take. And that's the number one mistake people make is getting flights that are cheap, right? Or getting, <laughs> getting the flights and agreeing a flight and then going adapt based on this being within the middle of the program. And so from the rugby point of view, we learned quite quickly that we had to align the best flight option to our travel, ideal travel schedule. And so that's understanding how you want to shift to start with. And so we naturally, you want to advance or delay your clock. So if you're going to go obviously west where the time zone is behind you, you want to delay your clock, go to bed later, wait later. That's quite an easy shift. Okay. But it's not if you delaying getting up later and then suddenly your flight's at 8 a.m. and you have to be at the airport for 6 a.m. Mm. That just sort of like is counterproductive. You do all this work of shifting for three days and then you get that. Um, if we're going eastward, you obviously want to be going to bed earlier and waking earlier. But James, can you, you're just going to need to go to bed at six o'clock tonight. It's not that easy, is it? <laughs> like, yeah, my daughter's not going to let that happen. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and then you bring up exactly the point, which is that, that life is one of the biggest constraints. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we would work on this, this team effort because most of the, the, the team had, didn't have kids, but the, there was actually a couple of individuals that we were put on different patterns because of their children okay in their mm. life um so it i can't give you the definitive answer now but the shifting component is really really important three days out and having a real specific schedule of sleep within your travel so that's one thing that i think people get wrong is they do their adjustment and then they ignore the importance of sleep or rest within the, the confines of leaving their country and landing so we would really define when we wanted people to try to go sleep and when we wanted people to stay awake. And that would be regimented within the schedule of, of our travel. We would also use, because we have the grace of a, a sports physician, in the UK you have to have melatonin prescribed. In the US you can just buy it over the counter. Yeah. <laughs> and using melatonin in a, in, a, in, a, in a specific way, specific number of hours before what we predict would be your, your melatonin release time period in, in your sleep pattern. And so there's all these different strategies that we used. Um, and what we found was that we can really minimize the effects of jet lag. We, we were going to New Zealand and training 48 hours later, high intensity. The wow. problem you've got is managing a group of athletes who all have individual responses, both east and west, and yeah. also to jet lag itself. So that's where you can have these rules of thumbs. You can do everything you can to minimize it. 
but you have to be ready to adjust the plan. And that requires a conversation with the coach ahead of time to preempt this. There's a reference point to say that these are the guys that we think are sensitive to, to jet lag. And they, these guys might take another 48 hours to, to get where we need them. So you can, we can either go earlier and land earlier, or you can be happy to accommodate them and that they just have to be ready in the 48 hour competition. Yeah. These are just performance problems, right? You've got to solve within your team and where you hang your hat in terms of priorities. Um, so yeah, I've not given you too many definitive things there, but no, it's good ready. because it's good because obviously even within just the US, you've got like three hour time zone differences, East and West coast. Yeah. So, you know, you, and you talked about obviously, Hey, maybe you're delaying your sleep or staying up later, et cetera. So you, you would, if someone was traveling, for example, going back, or let's say going forward, they live on the East coast or West coast and they're, yeah. they're fighting on the East coast, three hour difference. Okay. So you would have them delay their sleep for three hours and then wake up three hours later. But would you start that two, three days beforehand or would this so, be something? Yeah. Yeah, it would actually be it'd be the opposite, I think. So if you were five PM on the West Coast, you would be uh eight, 8 PM on the yeah. East Coast. So you, what you would want to be doing is sort of advancing oh, going back. Yeah, so go to yeah, bed early. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> so um now the the one thing here is 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 it gonna have an effect? The three hour time zone for me is is it is a is a is something that I w wouldn't focus on shifting too much with. Mm. But what I would do is in the day or two before, just raise awareness of what the time would be, right? So yeah. if it's, um, I'm on the West Coast, is can we get to bed a little bit earlier? Or can we just start that shift? Just a soft nudge, that would be, be it. Like, can I get to bed a little bit earlier? Okay, can we wake an hour earlier? And And that might be enough. I wouldn't be looking for what I call a hard shift. Yeah. Um, for me, it'd be education there. When we worked in baseball, these were things that were happening all the time. Mm. Like a flight from Texas to uh, over to sort of Oakland or Seattle way, and then suddenly we've got to go over to New York, right? An advancement of three hours. The idea here for us, we focus more on the consistency of the sleep, right? Is that you would try and get to sleep as soon as you can based on what's normal for you. And, yeah. and, and because you were traveling through the night, like 11, 12 o'clock at night, like, around, like, arriving at three or four, for us, it would be let's accommodate the day to get that sleep window in of that seven to eight hours. Mm. And that would be where we'd have to work with coaches. So within the three hour time zone element, it, it would be a soft appreciation of the time zones as opposed to a hard shift. The biggest things or the toughest time zones for us or anybody really is that eastward of six to nine hours is pretty mm. brutal um pretty pretty brutal because it's just stuck in the middle of that advanced time clock and you you know you should be going to yeah should be waking up and you're tired and you should be going to sleep and you're awake it's just it's just messed messed up um but yeah if you were in the us it would just be the delay is easier just go to bed a little bit later you've also got mm. the 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 foresight to go, what, how long am I in that destination city for? Mm. Right. Because if you're only there for, for three days, you could just stay on the normal time zone for you. Right. Yeah. It's not worth it. But if you're there for 10 to 12 days, then that shift is probably going to be worth it. Um, and so that, that's something that I've seen with different people in, in different sports and businesses is 
I'm just going to stay on the t- same time zone I'm on. I'm going to set my meetings or training to accommodate the fact that my UK time zone or whatever, and then and then just come back. But sport, mm. you're, you're generally there for an extended period of time. The US is interesting because, especially in the US sports, you're hopping every three to four days, basically. That's um, crazy, eh? Yeah. So <laughs> that's why the consistency of your schedule is probably better than trying to shift to where your, your destination mm. city is. Did you ever use like little fancy like blue light glasses and stuff for longer yeah. longer trips? Yeah. So you see, like the lionesses who went out to Australia, uh, went out to the World Cup in Australia, were using the orange okay. light, red light, and blue light. So we would use there was a I think they were called retimer glasses. The boys used to mock me, but we would use <laughs> blue light glasses on the flight. So again, having that specific plan of when to use blue light and when to um, Use basically sleep patches, eye patches. So you're just trying to uh, encourage the adjustment. And the other thing is, like, people go to a destination city and we say seat light, right? And we go out mm-hmm. for a walk, but they wear sunglasses. So, like, it's just <laughs> counterintuitive and people forget that that has an impact. So, yeah, we would seat light and, and use blue light and, and red light in different ways. Um, but for me, it was that real specific plan of when are we going to try and rest and sleep? And when are we going to try and seek light and be stimulated? When are we going to mm. actually seek some coffee? And when are we going to avoid coffee? And that was yeah. the biggest thing for people on travel because boredom, just I've got to do something, I'll have a coffee. And then suddenly that's the, the least you want, thing you want to do <laughs> at that point. Um, so planning that out for athletes was really critical, actually, to get things right. Nice. i got one more, one more question for you for the for the pod. But mm. for did you use pre-match primers at all? Within your or within any of the sports, and if so, you know, yeah. What 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 was your philosophy around it? Kind of how did you look to implement it? Yeah, so um, let's go most recently with baseball um, from the pers- perspective of right post uh, baseball potentiation. We would use that with our pitchers for about three hours prior to competition because the sport was classically a 7 p.m. type of yeah. game. And what we know about, you know, um, core temperature starting to drive down, which obviously has an effect on our ability to uh, excite neurons and express power, is obviously on its way down and starting to rest before we want that in competition. So we would use PAP from that point of view. Um, and it was mixed results, as in uh, how much athletes liked it. And so I think there's a lesson in that, that it's a very individual component. Mm. Um, so that's one lesson. Now, in the sevens, you'll be you'll be well um, versed in this concept of what the industry or the sport calls blowout runs, right? Mm. Morning sessions. So if you're playing at 10, you might do three hours before you might go and do a really short 10 to 20 minute, uh, open up the legs and, and um express some higher intensity work in preparation for the game and what i learned about that within the sport was that that was psychological as much as physiological and that mm. the players coming into a game um hitting the ground and running from minute one whether 150 meters per minute on average plus irrespective they they didn't want to be underprepared for that they wanted they didn't yeah. want to get their second wind coming into the second half yeah. and feel like the game is lost and that their place that was because they weren't physically ready. And so, yes, I inherited that. We ended up doing 
like short blowout sessions, uh, primer sessions as such, some people call them. Um, but then the tournament started to get longer. Men's and women's became combined, more games in a day, mm. then the games later finishes. And then you lose your big rocks of sleep. So it's, it's all a trade-off of does this fit? Baseball, three three hours minus at three or four in the afternoon, perfect. Never get to yeah. talk about We've got a game at 9.30 in the morning. I'd rather they sleep. So then it was finding other solutions. And one of the solutions we found was like pre-ischemic conditioning sometimes, mm-hmm. so occlusion, um, yep. because we were finding that repeat sprint efforts weren't compromised, they weren't enhanced, but the perception of effort was enhanced. And so that's, I think, what was happening with the blowout primers was that people were just getting a uh, maybe an upregulation of the energy system development or energy system contribution to how they perform tasks and suddenly their second wind is is reached earlier. I don't know, it's just a me waffling on that perception. <laughs> but when we did the occlusion study, we found that the repeat sprint efforts for no detriment and no benefit were significantly more economical, the perception of them was easier. So we started to use that because we couldn't be getting up at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> to go do this. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's that. But prior to, like 24 hours out, no, we didn't do primer work. If that's where your question was headed, we just did our captain's run and we just made sure that there was, everybody did what they felt they needed to do 24 hours out. I think at that point, you as a conditioning coach, so conditioning coach, is, is more about making sure there's nothing in what you're doing that ruins the psychological preparation to express what they need to express on the field. Mm. Um, so in the early days, I was resentful to go and do work at 7, 7.30 in the morning because I thought it was a cost to them. But I really tuned into the perceptual benefits of them, yeah. feeling good about that. And if you couple that with the ball and the technical, tactical side of things, I think there's a big big benefit to it. But people, as you know, people in sport tend to copy what other teams are doing and <laughs> always fit. So it's ensuring that you know exactly why you're doing what you're doing for yes. what purpose, what reason, either physiologically, psychologically, um, or for another reason. No, I'm with you on the, on the, on the perceptual side as well. I know with the, with one of the sevens campaigns we were doing. So obviously the second day, like we didn't want to go out and do anything physical, especially with an early morning game. So I put the guys in contrast therapy in the morning, cold, yeah. hot, cold, hot, finishing on hot, just to be yeah. like, okay, you know, almost like a quote unquote recovery stimulus slash you've done something in the morning, almost yeah. like you're woken up and you're good to go. So that's like, yeah, I know what you mean there. That's something I've, I've done. Another thing I did was when we played, we had national championships in the States here and we had, they played for the rugby 15s. They played the semis on Saturday and the finals on Sunday. Wow. That's how it works here. And, and I was like, holy shit. So we won the semis and I was like, shit, okay, we can't do a, like an actual primer on Sunday. So we jumped in the pool and basically in the morning in the hotel pool and we would do like underwater uh competition quote unquote how far you can go so same thing push off the wall hard hold your breath be a little bit out of breath whether that does anything or not i don't know i mean we ended up winning i'll put it down to that just <laughs> but you know stuff like that like you're getting a push off the wall so i guess you're getting like quote unquote power stimulus you're holding your breath you're getting a little bit of that going so no, yeah, I know what you mean, the perceptual side of it. And I mean, obviously guys have fun in the pool too, playing around and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot to it. I think if you, like, you'll know, people won't know this listening, but you're confined quite drastically in your preparation for a full game. You have maybe five metres, three metres sometimes by 12 <laughs> metres to the space yeah. for 13 people to warm up, mm-hmm. two coaches and SNC and physio. And so sometimes you can't get yourself into that 
um, high intensity work, or you have to be really creative about how you use that space. Yeah. And, and therefore the psychology component becomes even more important, especially if mm-hmm. you do have those three hours beforehand. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's why being on a journey with the athlete and thinking about things from their perspective or listening to them as opposed to mm-hmm. just doing something. And that's where practitioners get it wrong. Is like, we're going to do this because the research says that. Or we're going to do this because I've seen another team do it, and this is what's elite. It's like, well, hold on. The context and the, the, the environment you're in is completely different here. Uh, make sure you consider all, all elements here. No, no, this has been an awesome chat, Dan. I really appreciate you sharing Wonderful. all your knowledge and your experiences and everything. But where can people find you and follow you and see what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on uh, socials. or Twitter is, is Howl's Dan. I just I tend to engage and and it's a I try to bring a supportive element to Twitter as best as possible. No, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an observer of the disruption, not uh, a creator. Um, Instagram is where I tend to put out my sort of um, added value daily, um, and LinkedIn as well, as where I try to interact with people. So, Instagram would be collaborate underscore sports, which is the mentorship business I run, uh, and LinkedIn, and you can just search me as Dan Howells, and uh, yeah. I'm, I'm reachable and approachable and contactable through those. Perfect. No, no thanks for coming on, Dan. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.